0: Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and
1: investment in the 3D printing industry. Here's your host, Danny Piper. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of the Printing Money podcast. We are kicking off January here with our first uh, episode of the year. And to do that today, I've got some special guests First off, I'd like to introduce Chris Chidzik, who's the principal economist at AMT, and his partner, Dayton Horvath, who's the director of emerging technologies at AMT. It's an IMTS year, so for those that uh, aren't familiar with IMTS, every other year they host the largest manufacturing equipment trade show in North America. And thinking about where we are this year in terms of the forecast in 2024, where are we going? I thought it'd be interesting to understand how the rest of the manufacturing world thinks about it. So I'd like to introduce Chris first. Maybe Chris, if you're if possible, I think everybody knows Dayton, who's been on the podcast uh, or listening to it. He's been on before. He's at every event. But you are sort of the star of the show today. And I'd love to get a little bit about your background. I think everybody would like to hear from you. Thanks, and happy to be here. Um, So like you said, I'm Chris Chidzik with the
0: Association for Manufacturing Technology. Um, I've been here about six years now, and the entire time I have been knee-deep in data on machinery orders. AMT was founded back in 1902, and one of the things they've been doing since then is gathering data on the industry. Uh, We have three different surveys. Uh, The primary one that I think we're going to be talking about today is USMTO, which tracks orders of metalworking machinery in the US, Mexico, and Canada. Uh, We then take that data to try and see how the economy affects our members' businesses and how their business affects the economy.
1: And Dayton, maybe just uh, as a refresher for everybody, uh, a little quick background on you. Sure. So uh,
2: Director of Emerging Technology at AMT, been here about two and a half years working on anything to do with how AMT defines emerging tech, which is additive manufacturing, robotics and automation, and industrial software. And so uh, happy to be here again covering the M&A and investment side, which I think we'll get to in the second half of the show.
1: Well, thank you both for joining. Chris, I I wanted to kind of jump in and and just Maybe as you're thinking through, before we get to 2024, can you put some perspective for us on 2023 and how that shaped up for the manufacturing equipment market?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So 2023 was a bit of an interesting year. Um, The headline is, it's down. Orders are down. But, and I, I really like to underline this, but... If you look back at the historical context, it's still a really good year. Uh, 21 and 22 were so good for orders of manufacturing technology that had they not really happened, we wouldn't be talking about 23 being down. We would say, wow, what a great year this has been.
1: So we were chatting a little bit before this in in our prep. And I just, I want to kind of come back to a point. With 23 being relatively in historical standards a good year, how much of that ties to, you think, COVID and that overhang of the supply chain disruptions? And is that a big part of it? Maybe you can expand on that so we can have a better perspective of how to think about the last kind of, say, five years.
0: Absolutely. And going back to 2018, uh it was a great time. I started at I or at AMT. It was my first IMTS. A uh, good time to be around the industry. It orders were at record levels. Um, a really interesting trend I like to point out is that the decline between 2018 and 2019 in orders was greater than the
1: decline between 19 and 20, even with COVID and everything. But, but to be clear, you, we were seeing a decline starting in 2018. So before COVID hitting, we were hitting a slump. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think
0: it was going into COVID with that little bit of a slump and then everybody being home rapidly, rapidly changing how they spend their money from services to goods and How basically changing entirely how they consume and that led manufacturers to basically retool everything to increase capacity make different goods that consumers were demanding and that really led to an lack of a better word an explosion in orders of manufacturing technology to meet both the consumer demand as well as that intermediary demand because you have to remember the machines that our members make and sell don't just make final goods, they make almost every component that's made out of metal that goes into every product. So even though consumer demand might be going one direction, there's still all that B2B activity that happens uh, with these
1: machines. Yeah, absolutely. So then thinking through that right now, all of a sudden, you know, we had this decline sort of occurring 2018, 2019, COVID, 2020 is an anomaly of a year. Describe for us kind of 2021, 2022, 2023, because I thought you, you know, the underlined but is a very interesting but because if those are huge years and we've got this sort of resurgence, putting 23 in perspective is, is really helpful before we jump into 2024.
0: Absolutely. And another thing that we should also take a look at, other than just the machinery orders themselves, are also the orders of tooling and work holding. Exactly. Um, those are the other uh, different technologies that we track very closely. And what I like to say to people who aren't in the industry every day is that when the machinery orders go up, that's when people want to be making things. When the tooling and work orders go up, that's when the people are making things. And there was a huge difference in 21 and 22 between the machinery orders and the tooling and work holding that we really hadn't seen in a while um prior to COVID, you know there were small gaps one would go up then the other one would quickly follow but nothing like the gap that we saw in starting really in the second half of 2021 and we've really boiled this down to three main theories um first of all it was just a lag in how we track the different data machinery we track when it's ordered tooling and work holding when it's shipped it's just like a dynamic of how they're made and sold, and how it's easiest to collect the data.
1: The, oh the yeah, cutting tools. Cutting tools probably don't have the same lead time that the big equipment has. So them being a tracked on shipments versus orders is that? I mean, I don't know if that's going to be as a big of a problem. I'm just so the cutting tools
0: it. are just the consumable that actually go in and touch the metal and cut it. Not the machine. It's like uh, you buy the Correct. drill and you go through the drill bits a lot. So those are sold almost by the pound so we don't really need to know when they're ordered it's just when they're sold and that's also economically more important because the more tooling you're using the more parts you're putting out the door and that's the real significance of that data
1: and what were you seeing is that differential you said there's a gap that was uh, occurring there was it in terms of that gap for the machine sales themselves versus cutting tools how, what, what did that spread look like in 21 22 it was a pretty wide gap
0: um i don't i have the chart in front of me here i can you know look at the lines but if you're just listening it's basically the machinery orders went up dramatically and the tooling and workholding just kind of stayed flat and i think you know there's a couple of reasons I- why it could be i think it's that lag between order the machine takes a while till it's on the floor and you're using the consumables, which was also really exacerbated during that period of kind of like a car, look around a machine, point to a component, and there was a problem getting it. Second, uh, we tracked the machinery orders based on value. So as the value of the machine goes up through automation, um, additional components, uh, increased efficiencies, if anything, they might actually use a little bit less tooling than a less expensive machine. Because if you can optimize a tool path, you're going to crash less, break more. If you can detect anomalous heat in certain areas, you're going to wear the tool less. So if anything, you'd use a little bit less on a higher value machine. And then I think another thing that is really often overlooked is just getting material itself. If you have a machine on the floor, if you have all the tooling, all your employees, it's the perfect scenario for making parts. If you don't get that shipment of base metal, like steel, copper, whatever you need to make, that machine is just sitting there idle, not using tooling.
1: Right. Now, Well, by the way, well, well said. I, it's interesting. So now we've seen 2023 is actually not a bad year. We're looking at 2024 and, you know, I think there's a, a number of things that will affect 2024. My, my prediction for the 3D printing industry is I think we, we bottom out in terms of we're, we're growing industry overall, but I think we had some plateauing of equipment sales, but we're going to pick back up. How do you see the overall market in 2024 shaping up for manufacturing equipment more broadly?
0: So we've actually seen a couple different predictions of where the industry is going to end up. Um, Starting with the Gardner Capital Spending Survey, that is a a projection that we come up with uh, based on a survey of manufacturers. Uh, AMT produces it alongside our partners at Gardner Business Media. And we survey people who buy machinery and say, what are you going to spend next year? The only drawback to that is we surveyed between... June and July of 2023, when I'm pretty sure most people thought a recession was around the corner. That one was a little pessimistic. It said down about 7%. I've heard revised forecasts that are as high as 8% growth in 2024. I tend to be a little more optimistic just in general, but I tend to agree with the upside because a lot of that recessionary fear that everybody had throughout 23 just hasn't materialized. And a lot of the underlying data is really pointing to a very healthy economy.
1: What do you think in terms of when we, we think about some of the underlying drivers? Um, I think there's there's really three that are, you know, come up a lot. One being interest rates, another being labor, and sort of the last one being geopolitical when you're, I mean, I'm like, nobody has a perfect crystal ball here, but how are you seeing sort of these kind of various constituents shaping up to affect the market? You've got a positive outlook. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of fluctuation going on here and how we see interest rates, maybe starting with that one. How do you see interest rates affecting everything? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a really interesting one. I remember back in
0: June, uh, chair, uh, Fed Chair Powell was giving a press conference and somebody asked him about, you know, where are we going to see this dis- these disinflationary trends first? And he uh, said something about, you know, durable goods sector, those housing construction, things that are very tied to interest rates. And, you know, if you know that meme of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio holding the beer, pointing at the TV, I, ca- I kind of did one of those moves, um, but, you know, it was like 2.30 in the afternoon. So it was a coffee, not a beer. But... That really stuck out to me. And I was like, you know, as the interest rates have been rising, we have been seeing a trend of falling orders. So I really wanted to look back and see, is that the norm? And so it has been recently, but looking back in history, over other Fed hiking cycles, orders of manufacturing technology actually increased typically. And I think that has a lot more to do with the environment that interest rates are Going to be raised in. It's a period of good economic activity that they're trying to cool. I think it goes back that the underlying demand for manufacturing technology comes from people who want to make stuff. If people want to make stuff, these technologies will be in demand. So, even though we're in a higher interest rate environment, I think as long as both the consumer demand stays. Um, b2b activity on investment and all of the government investment in various infrastructure projects uh manufacturing facilities continue to come online despite a period of higher interest rates i think demand for manufacturing technology can rebound
1: yeah uh, that makes sense i'll probably skip over labor just for the sake of time but i think on geopolitical that you kind of just sort of laid into the starting point, I think there's a couple of themes here of reshoring and nearshoring. That's not just true in North America. It's true in Europe. It's true everywhere about how we sort of rationalize our supply chains. That's probably a piece of geopolitical, but gosh, looking at what's going on with uh, the Red Sea right now and shipping um, that's becoming problematic, looking at what's going on, obviously in the world with Ukraine and looking at the world of, uh, you know, Israel and Palestine, it's, it's creating a dynamic that's playing out. How are you looking at geopolitical influencing the, uh, the machine tool sales going forward? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, it just creates
0: a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty is never good for business. That aside, getting specifically into it, the shipping constraints. um, Not only is the Red Sea having the biggest uh, jam up since it was literally jammed up uh, back in 2021, it's really lengthening shipping times. Europe is going to be the one that's most acutely going to feel that, but that's going. It'll likely have some ripple effects onto the U.S. economy, um, particularly in manufacturing, as. We rely on Europe for a lot of input materials. We export a lot of manufactured goods to Europe, not necessarily consumer manufactured goods, but the big capital equipment that's really made with the manufacturing technology that we track. In addition to that, the Panama Canal is even having issues with the water levels. Uh, depending on the size of the ship, they can only go through you know one or two at a time, and it's really all around the world Uh, constraining when you can get stuff. And I think that goes back to one of the trends that we saw during COVID, actually, when the orders were increasing. There are industries that typically bought a couple machines here and there, really, really increasing their capacity in the US or nearshoring somewhere in Canada, Mexico. Because I think people realize the value of anything across the world could trigger one of these disruptions and having a very short or even sometimes redundant supply chain is super critical to, you know, getting product out the door and getting money in your pocket.
2: To follow up on that, given there's the, obviously the the capacity signal coming from the orders side. Should we be looking more at the cutting tool Mm -hmm. figures for how 24 is going to evolve given these highly volatile?
0: Yep, absolutely. So going into 24, that disparity that I was talking about during COVID has really narrowed. And we're starting to see the machinery, the tooling, and the workholding all starting to move in a I don't want to say a typical pattern because what's a typical pattern with anything economic, but more of a pre-COVID trend. And I think 24, we're going to see a lot more of those orders converging into their old patterns. So is it safe to say utilization is finally catching up? Absolutely. Uh, Utilization is catching up. And I think a lot of that reshoring that was done allowed us to have the capacity that even if domestic demand dries up a little bit, we have some excess capacity for exports in the future. Um, and that's going to be very critical, especially with a lot of the investment that's been happening, particularly in new green energy product projects, rather than, you know, creating factories in Europe, Asia, wherever. If there's factories that are set up, ready to go and have experience, I don't see why those orders wouldn't come right back to the United States where the capacity exists.
1: Chris, I really, uh, I know that you've got uh, a big event coming up later this week. Maybe we could uh, just touch base. How do people find you in the future? What's going on later this week? So I know this, this, by the time this podcast comes out, it's probably going to be about the same time as your event. Maybe tell us a little bit about it and how people can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So this Friday, Um,
0: At 8 a.m. we're having a webinar, it's our Winter Economic Forum. It's kind of an update on our MT Forecast Conference, which happens every October. But so this Friday the 26th at 8 a.m. we'll have a speaker from Oxford Economics deliver an updated forecast on the economy as well as the manufacturing technology sector. Um, We'll have some additional speakers on AI, where manufacturing is going, general things. And then I'll just kind of give a uh, round out of some of the research that we've been doing this last year of where manufacturing technology is going. Um, I hope I didn't put too many spoilers in this, but it's pretty closely going to follow.
1: <laughs> well, we, we really appreciate the time. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, all the listeners can go on to the AMT, the Association for Man- uh, Manufacturing Technologies website and get information on the upcoming event that you're talking about on Friday. Yep, absolutely. Uh,
0: amtonline.org. Upper right-hand corner, just click on the events page. It is the first one because it's this week. So better be the first one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great, Chris. We really, truly appreciate your time and are grateful for it. And Dayton and I are going to spend some time talking about actually some of the upcoming events in the 3D printing world, as well as some of the M&A deals and some of the financing. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Dayton, next up for us, actually, for uh, talking about events, a couple weeks coming up February, what, 6th through the 8th, AM Strategies in New York?
2: That's the one. Uh, I think it's the only
1: major event in New York City for the
2: additive industry. Uh, AMT is actually a sponsor this year. So uh, we'll be there with a full team looking forward to some great panel discussions and keynotes.
1: Yeah, well, one of them is called Printing Money. And uh, there's been some changes in the uh, finance landscape in the 3D printing world. Uh, Congrats to Brian Dow and Steve Butko and Troy Jensen, who have all teamed up now at Cantor Fitzgerald. You will see both uh, Steve and Brian on a panel with me. I think on the 7th. So for anybody that's going to make it there, we're looking forward to this. We also have a a, a number of the kind of key industry kind of bankers who have been tracking this industry for a long time that's going to be there. So Christian Hartenberger is going to be there as well. So, you know, hat tip to him. I think, you know, those are the, the people that, you know, if you've been around the industry and done deals, you know, everybody there, 10 years of experience in additive, which is, which is fantastic. And I'm honored to be part of it as well. So let's jump into this. So, I mean, obviously, since the last episode, quarter, you know, mid-December, it's, you know, we're hitting that holiday time. So we don't have a lot of deals to go through. Um, so let's just kind of rip through some of these. The, the biggest announcement, I think, overall is on the software side of the world with Synopsys to acquire Ansys. And uh, you've seen this, Dayton. You know, maybe give us a little bit of thoughts here. You know, Ansys pretty well because uh, they've got you know a fair number of additive tools, but it's only a small subset. Um, yes. Ahead.
2: So Ansys has uh, always been strong in uh, the simulation category, computer aided engineering, some may call it. And uh, you know, over the years, they've been uh, the preferred solver by a lot of. Uh, the service providers, and a lot of end users of additive manufacturing because it addresses some of the multi-physics simulation needs as they get to those more advanced part geometries uh, for both mechanical and thermal applications, uh, just to name a couple. And so, you know, ANSYS uh, obviously is not specific to additive, but curious to see that being a known entity in the simulation software world um, to then uh, be, well, proposed acquisition by an even larger uh, simulation software company, I think makes a lot of sense. But Danny, you know, uh, you're a little closer to Silicon Valley than I am commenting on the semiconductor side of this.
1: Well, I mean, I I think from an additive standpoint, you know, additive is a small piece of ANSYS, but I do think there's always been this idea that additive and the semiconductor industry have a lot of related kind of components. We think about process controls, process monitoring, and you you see companies like Lam Research having made investments, Applied Materials has come in to make investments in this industry. So... Um, I see this overall, it's a positive. I don't think it's really, I think it's net neutral really for the additive industry and we included here just because, um, you know, Ansys has done a couple acquisitions of additive software companies already. Um, I don't think there's, you know, this isn't one where you see the synergies and you're going to cut out a bunch of staff. They just have different things and they're going to be a bigger entity together. It's a, you know, a, an approximately $35 billion transaction, part cash, part stock. So it's worth noting overall. Uh, but again, I don't think this is one that's a revolutionary one that's going to change additive in a way. It's probably not going to change really ANSYS's position at all. Um, hopefully it doesn't get them defocused on additive. It keeps them uh, you know, squarely aligned and, and executing the way that they have.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that neutral is the right way to think about this one.
1: So uh, next up is Acuren Technologies acquired WAM3D. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about WAM 3D. Yeah, out of the UK, the
2: company name is also synonymous with the process technology or category that they represent, wire arc Additive Manufacturing. And this is one of, uh, I'd say, a group of technologies that fall under directed energy deposition, which is one of the seven ASTM categories. Uh, to WAM 3 d which has applications in a lot of uh, maintenance, repair, and overhaul type industries. You know, energy uh, comes to mind, particularly oil and gas, but just as well aerospace, particularly for metals. Uh, it's a wire-based process, which has been of particular popularity in recent years because it avoids some of the challenges that uh powder-based feedstocks have in uh directed energy deposition so um i i'm happy to see that there's a little more recognition to the wire side of ded coming about because there's been a handful of companies growing the last few years
1: yeah i think this is a actually it's an interesting follow-on to synopsis and ansys because Acuron Technologies is a portfolio company of Temasek, which is a large investment firm out of Singapore. And Acuron is a holding company inside of Temasek focused on advanced manufacturing. And so in this group, they have a number of businesses. They do have one, Singapore Aerospace Manufacturing, which is obviously aerospace. But as you get into uh, mechatronic uh, systems technic or resif technologies, some of these companies, next gen wafer systems, they're semiconductor type companies. So they are very focused in advanced manufacturing. And they already had a company by the name of Adept 3 d that was going down a joint development or uh, they had a strong relationship with uh, WAM3D already. so. This is uh, contemplated already and you know, in terms of their, their close relationship and development. So this looks like it was already a fairly, you know, this isn't something that was out of left field. They've been working together and glad to see that uh, WAM3D has got the backing now of a Temasek type of investor because this industry needs more of those. So it uh, looks like it's a positive one. And I, Dayton, you'd notice that uh, aside from the... Um, the the Akron deal, what, Industrial AM purchased a machine? Yeah. Yes,
2: uh, out of Norway, Industrial AM uh, bought one of the uh is the name of the printer, from wam 3D. And uh, so just uh, some co- uh, nicely coinciding press releases there in terms of uh, a little more commercial traction. Uh, I don't imagine these are uh, inexpensive systems, so... Uh, every every uh, new location is significant, I imagine, for uh, a company the size of Lam 3D. And you know, Danny, looking at the all the companies you mentioned under uh, on there this almost feels a little bit like a services roll-up. Um, you know, expanding the capabilities uh, across advanced manufacturing processes.
1: Uh, what do you think i think that uh, temasek has come up on numerous uh conversations as i've looked at services over the the last few years you're exactly right about it um where it's going to fit with them and which divisions they fit because they have a th- this is one of a few companies which temasek's involved in so they're involved in medical manufacturing aerospace manufacturing and uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if over the course of time you'll see a few more of these layer in. K- keep your eye on Temasek uh, as a result. So most definitely. All um, right, what's the next? Ne- the next three deals that we have are really ones that we've covered on prior episodes. So we'll start with the Nano Dimension offers to buyers, Stratasys. This came out right before Christmas. Um, so this has been sitting and percolating for the last month. I don't think there's a lot of new stuff to really cover here. It's an all-cash offer at $16.50 a share, kind of the values, Stratasys at $1.1 billion. It's a premium over the market. but this sort of is you know, the, the same problem right now. I think that shareholders have to look at, they could take a premium right now if they want. It's very, if you're short-term focused, you can get a premium and see you later. Is it the right long-term option for the company? I think this is where they have to sit back and, and evaluate what's the right answer. And so that's what they're going to have to determine. Any thoughts here, Dayton, any commentary? Okay. At a minimum, deja vu. Uh,
2: this is not the first or the second. I, I don't have to look back in my notes at uh, what iteration this is. I mean, the, the valuations uh, are down significantly from uh, the prior you know, scenarios here, and I'd be, you know, I'd be really curious to see if there's any willingness of. Uh, the majority of the shareholders from Stratasys to entertain something like this, even with a reduced price, just knowing that uh, this didn't come from Stratasys uh, the way the Desktop Metal uh, merger did. And that was voted down to the tune of 70 or 80%, uh, I recall, of the shareholders uh, voting it down. And to have uh, Dimension come in uh, with another offer here, uh, I can't imagine that's uh, warmly received, even with yeah. the reduced valuation.
1: Look, I think Stratasys is doing. I mean, they're they're probably the best in class right now in the industry. Um, if you believe that additive is going to bottom out this year and kind of come back, then the valuation should bounce back. And that's where I just feel like it's shareholders that are going to vote for this are ones that want a quick turn on their dollar, and the ones that don't vote for it are the ones that see the long term value and go, you know, is is there a rationale? Is there some reason why the nanodimension team would be better owners of the company? And I think that's the question on the table. So in the long haul, is is there a better ownership structure in place than what Stratasys has today? And I think that's the vote that they have to make.
2: So, yeah,
1: definitely um, wait and see on that one. Yep, exactly. So the next two are just Announcements on formal closings, the Align Technology acquisition of Cubicure formally closed on January 3rd. And uh, maybe closer to your uh, uh, heart is the Nexa 3D uh, closing on Ascentium since you had a longstanding relationship doing consulting work with Asentium That formally closed on January 13th. So those two are now in the books as closed M&A deals.
2: So. Good way to start out the year for uh, all four companies involved. Uh, looking forward to seeing uh, some of them, hopefully at IMTS this year. Uh, can't wait to see if there's any uh, resulting impact uh, that these acquisitions have on their product lines. Uh, the product mix is uh, we look forward to
1: September in Chicago. And uh, we, we, we hit those on some of the prior episodes. So if you are curious at uh, that take, you know, please go back and check those out. As we move on to financing transactions, I, I think the, the coolest, best one, most exciting one uh, we're going to hit first, and that's 3DEO uh, just announced January 18th that Seiko Epson and the Development Bank of Japan. They haven't really disclosed their last couple rounds, by the way. Uh, 3DEO did close a round in 2022. Uh, some of the investors in that round were 10X Capital and Hemisphere Ventures. And um, for those that don't know, they, they've had an investor, Fusion X Ventures, that's been in the company since their seed round. And Fusion X is, a, is an interesting company overall to, uh, to look at. And Dayton, I think you spent some time with Ken Hood from Fusion X at Formnext. I did.
2: Uh, you know, got a chance to learn about uh, their thinking as it relates to advanced manufacturing. Uh, being a, uh, a venture fund with uh, strong ties to Japan, uh, I was happy to uh, catch Ken up on some of the the less forward announcements and uh, companies that are bubbling up in the industry. Uh, and so it was, it was great to see that they remain uh, strong with respect to uh, their views on where additive is headed. And I think uh, their support of 3DO in getting, helping get this next round done here um, is a testament to that.
1: Yeah, I, and, and staying on uh, Fusion X for a second, Fusion X is sort of an interesting, they're not a traditional venture arm. Uh, they are a spinoff of D&K engineering in the San Diego area. They do you know manufacturing of machinery and equipment, specialized equipment. So it's a logical fit with uh, 3D printing. The connection point that you just talked about, with the um, the, the team having somebody full time in Japan, the language skills to operate in Japan, uh, is really, I think, uh, a, a differentiator for them. So not only do they understand hardware in their DNA—that's how they started—they also have relationships with you know with Japan, which I think is going to be right, that. That's what led to Seiko Epson and this investment. Um, the fact that Ken Hood was walking around. Um, you know, Formnext, I thought was fantastic to see the support, continuing support from an investor, and especially when investors were scarce in 2023. I think it was it was fantastic the support he's given the team. Uh, maybe real quickly, Dayton. I for some listeners here, they may not know 3DEO. So if you want, uh, take a crack at sort of describing them a little bit. Uh, I'm happy to jump in on that one too. Sure,
2: just to keep it brief, we've got a you know, it's a hybrid approach that uses. Uh, CNC milling in combination with a metal binder jetting type approach, which uses uh, powder spreading combined with uh, a, an inkjet agent to bind each layer. And then they uh, trace one or multiple layers out with the CNC en- uh, end mill uh, to generate these uh, green parts that then need to be sintered via a debind and sintering. Process uh, primarily for steels and uh, primarily for smaller components. I think uh, I don't know the size of an apple or smaller is really the sweet spot.
1: That's uh, a, probably a great description. I think for Matt uh, Petros, this is um, you know a great accomplishment for him getting the strategic investors on board. I think what was advertised in the press releases was about a six point eight million dollar round for about five percent stake in the company. And uh, the team there, and they're in Torrance, California, which they've really um, started building out a sort of a business model that isn't necessarily focused on selling machines, but really selling and developing solutions for customers, whether that is parts production, or at some point scaling into a solution where they'll enable uh, the manufacturers with a complete, you know, integrated turnkey solution at their facilities. So it's a, it's, it's a, good business model for them that uh, gets uh, the customer adoption up and running. And I think they've had really good traction with customers as a result.
2: Definitely. I think to wa- uh, the thing to watch there is going to be the the industries that they're targeting because they have a little bit of differentiation in the the types of parts and the way they approach it from a business model standpoint. So, looking forward to seeing them at shows throughout
1: the year. I would say we will look at the next transaction on the list. Is Velo three D uh, completed an eighteen million dollar direct offering? It's a follow-on offering. So at uh, fifty cents a share. They were in need of additional capital. Um, this I think closed on December 28th, and uh, we covered sort of the some of the management changeovers that uh, occurred you know, with Benny Bowler and the CFOs on prior episodes. So, this gives them a little bit of a cash infusion that was much needed. And well, um,
2: Danny, and- I actually want to turn around the question to you you know, secondary uh offerings such as this. Don't happen too often. It's is it usually in good times or not so good times when we see these things coming across?
1: Well, clearly it's not a great time for them. Um, I mean, they've had some increasing sales. That part's great, right? Their margins have been problematic. They have you know profitability, of the company, and the amount of cash that they had for their runway. That's why when I say it's problematic, I think. The, the prior sales trajectories or right orders were, I think, you know, that was a, a question mark at the, after the last earnings call is where, where's sort of the orders going from that standpoint. So, you know, shoring up the balance sheet with a little additional cash gives them more runway to start to kind of figure things out. So I, this is, this is more of a, you know, saving the company and giving it broader runway type of a financing right now, I I think is the way I would characterize it. Makes sense. Hopefully, it sets them
2: up on the right foot for uh, the next quarter here.
1: Yeah, exactly. They are, they're a prominent company in the industry, and uh, you hate to see hard landings for, for companies. But this is sort of that I think we're going to see in 2024 is really, if we're bottoming out as an industry from the a lot of these back companies and the public companies, there could be some hard falls uh, for a few, and there's going to be some deals this year that get done. And so... Whether they are financing transactions or M and A transactions, we're going to see more of this uh, this year. The next one; uh, these are the next couple are just smaller transactions. But uh, uh, you know, I smile at this one. Red Wolf Technology. Bet you most people haven't heard of Red Wolf. They, uh, I actually met Brad, the CEO at Form Next. He came up and introduced himself after the startup panel uh, the first day brought us over to the booth. They are integrating 3D printers in a distributed environment throughout the sort of cell phone electronics market so that they can custom print uh, cell phone covers. They just raised two and a half million dollars and are they have a distribution partnership already in place with a number of cell phone stores throughout Europe. So they are deploying hundreds of 3D printers as we speak. Um, This is his second go around as the CEO. He did the same thing for screensavers uh, for the uh, cell phone markets, especially these are for, I think, the older phones that you can't get the most latest and greatest, you know, cell phone case. If you've got an iPhone 10 and, you know, you can get the 14, you can get the 15, they stock those. But if you have older ones, you need a new case. They already have sort of a design and setup uh in place that can integrate in the store with very i'll call it expert software that uh you know the store technicians can easily hit the go button and uh and work in those environments so kind of a cool little application it's not the sexiest uh you know rocket engine type of deal but it's one that makes money and it's uh it's integrating additive in a way that uh, solves a small supply chain problem for people with cell phones
2: I love applications like this because it's a little more consumer facing and there's a little bit of a customization aspect to it as well. Not to mention, I think it finally shows uh, some of the flexibility uh, regarding the materials that do match up with the traditionally injection molded cell phone cases that we're all used to these days, especially the high end ones. Um, So great to see that, uh, you know. The technology is finding its way into more consumer-facing scenarios, especially in CPG.
1: Yeah. Moving away from consumer, though, we have 3DK Tech has just announced another pre-seed funding uh, using PitchBook. Of course, everybody knows my disclaimer. PitchBook's never going to be perfect, and uh, I, I just want everyone to understand that using the best available data that we can get recently closed on a seed round. Uh, prior to this, it looks like they've raised about sort of maybe in this may be included in that about three and a half in total uh, with 1 million was their first round back in June of 2021. So 3DK Tech is a company that has offices in Hong Kong and Newark, New Jersey. And From what we can see on the website, they are a combination of select laser melting technology with ultrasonic waves. And the thought here is that with these ultrasonic waves integrated in, it negates the need for stress relief and heat treatment Uh, that is often the case with traditional SLM processes. Um, Dayton, I don't know if you were able to see much else on this one, there's not a lot on the website nothing formal to add uh this is this is one where
2: it's time to dig in with the company itself uh in the future because this is definitely a novelty in combining these two energy sources in uh producing metal parts from powder
1: yeah i think when we looked at this earlier the one thing you commented on i thought you know they have the same build rates on slm that everybody else sort of does mid sort of mid of the road um uh, right, the, the
2: differentiator really does uh, seem to come off on the spec sheet from their limit, uh, limited need for post-processing versus standard uh, laser powder bed fusion approaches where um, there's usually a, a porosity concern, especially for more regulated applications.
1: So the investors on this last round aren't new to the 3D printing world. There was actually Hacks and SOSV. Uh, Hacks is sort of, I don't want to call it an accelerator, but it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an adjunct group of SOSV that is there to develop and help companies doing hard tech and equipment scale up and grow. They have engineers on their team. Uh, Dayton, you've I think interfaced with them uh, in the past, had uh, participated on panels. Um, yeah, any insight?
2: I mean, hacks is really uh, I think a good example of the extent to which uh, VC funds are willing to go to support their portfolio, and in particular, hacks I think has uh, you know uh, relatively recently uh, come into its own. Uh, to support the prototyping, engineering, um, and even the design aspects as it relates to some of the hard tech products and or services that the SOSB portfolio has been pushing on. And uh, I'm happy to see that there are more groups like this out there because... The development cycles for companies like 3DK tech are going to be longer and harder than many of the more software focused um, startups out there in additive. And so looking forward yeah. to seeing the, the results that Hacks can, uh, can bring to the table uh, in supporting 3DK tech, especially as they uh, I think they announced they're coming to the U.S. Uh, this month from Hong Kong.
1: And for those, uh, SOSV is not new to 3D printing. They were one of the seed round investors in December of 2011 on Formlabs. So uh, very, very prominent investor, large fund, uh, great news. It'd be certainly interesting to learn more about these ultrasonic waves and how it impacts the SLM process. So stay tuned on this one. Just everybody understand, keep your eye out for 3DK tech. And what's going to come in the future from them? Last one, really small deal. Uh, it is a company AM, or uh, really AM manufacturer, out of the UK. Raised the equivalent of about uh, just under a million dollars US on about a one and a half million dollar pre-money. And looking at the company, they largely use MJF technology, although they do have some DLP sls and sla some fdm as well uh, they are making parts polymer parts for a variety of industries they service uh uh based uh, approach and we're invested from a group called maven capital partners out of the uk so it's just it's one to note that it's glad, glad to see that services are being invested in because that's that's a growing area within am yeah it's one
2: that uh continues to be closest to the customer, especially when customers aren't consistently using additive in their processes today. So as long as there's a voice of the customer that helps validate, um, the product market fit across existing polymer additive technologies, I can see a small investment like this to help shore up capacity and make sure that they've got the team in place to service that growth, uh, hopefully, uh, what Chris said earlier is uh true for the additive side as well and that uh you know it's not going to be such a bad year uh, in 24 neutral to plus a few percent depending on who you ask in machine tools with any luck wow. we'll see similar things from the additive side especially as we get into uh the prep for imts um you know coming up in september here um it's going to be i think Uh, A real sign that we're coming back out of uh, this downturn that we kind of felt in 23 and got lucky without this uh, recessionary concern coming through.
1: Yeah, look, I think uh, there was growth last year. Let's not uh, get too glum over the market uh, overall. I I think the point of today's call was and podcast is really to focus in on the opportunity. 2024 should be another year. It's going to be bumpy probably with some of the geopolitical But, uh, you know, I think some of the SPAC companies that are working through their issues still are going to come to bear. But I think the underlying fundamentals in the industry and some of the things behind it have some positive attributes. I would say that uh, stay tuned to the next episode. But for those in between, we'd love to see you at AM Strategies. And feel free to reach out to me anytime if you have comments, questions or thoughts on future episodes. Well, this concludes episode 14 of the Printing Money podcast. I look forward to talking to you on the next episode. You've been listening to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the
0: 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.